In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss this is not a diving podcast with scuba welcome to the show i'm scuba this is the not a diving podcast this week on the show, there's no guest. I noticed that there's been 20 weeks pretty much. Yeah, in fact, 19 guests and so 20 weeks since I last did a recap kind of solo pod. And it's kind of interesting to do these occasionally. I'm finding, or rather I found the last one interesting and I think it will be interesting to do on today, just to kind of go over what we've talked about over the last... 19 shows how things have developed like the themes that have emerged because I never really have a set plan like an overall strategy as it were I kind of have my tactical battle plan for each episode but I you know I don't get a chance to think too broadly about where we're going so it's good to go back over things and just assess what we've covered and assess what has come out of it and how we might attack the next few episodes going forward. Now, this is also in the context of me spending a weekend in Berlin last weekend, which was also the context of the last update kind of a pod that we did. Uh, So we had a show, a hot flush show at Arden, and we also did on the Saturday, so that was on the Friday, and on the Saturday we did her live stream hot flush presents at her that's the one with the bathroom for those of you who are not aware um so for both of those shows we had anna cost playing closet Yi, who had come in from uh south korea actually she'd been in europe for a few weeks but yeah she was on the last leg of a, a trip from there, which is the first time I think she's been over playing proper shows. She's been over before, but it was her first proper run really as an artist doing the touring thing. 
And at the Arden show, we had Apple Blim playing back to back with Roscoe. And then on her, Roscoe just played on his own. Additionally to me, of course, doing my thing too. So it was kind of a, it was a fun weekend. A bit different to my last trip there where I, if you listen to episode 15 of the pod, where I described clearing out the dance floor of a, uh, a Berlin club. So it's a bit different to that, but it's always a bit different when it's your show. So... Yeah, the weekend was was a lot of fun. I had a chance to walk around the city uh, in certain areas, which I hadn't been for a long time, um, which was a f- really strange experience, I have to say. So I, when I first moved over, I've said I've realised <laughs> that I've said on basically every episode that I moved to Berlin in 2007. I hear myself saying it on these episodes and think, oh God, this must be so boring. But it was kind of a pivotal moment in my life really, because it was the just at the point that I was able to start doing music for a living. So moving over from London was you know, heavily financially motivated. I quit my day job and decided just to go ahead and make music in a place where there was a really great scene, but crucially it was much, much cheaper to live than in London. So anyway, I moved to an area called Friedrichshain, and I lived for the first few years that I was there on a street called Boxhagner Strasse. And I was able to walk around that area for the first time in a long, long time. So I, I left, eventually left the city in twenty end of 2014. But the last few years I was living in Neukom and I didn't go back a lot to hang in, in Friedrichstein. So I walked around there and, you know, it's a truism about Berlin that it's constantly changing and it's changed so much. And everyone says that about it. And I guess it's just obvious since uh, the state that it was in when the wall came down was such that, you know, it was going to be, well, the process of development was going to be sort of constant. And, you know, it's taken this long for it to really start resembling a proper, quote unquote, proper German city. So 30 years or more, just over 30 years for it to kind of feel like somewhere which is no longer a kind of work in progress, I guess. But anyway, I was able to walk around Friedrichshain and, you know, Friedrichshain was one of the places, one of the early places, I guess, to become quote unquote cool in that, in the kind of post wall coming down era. So like Mitte, I think was the first place and then Prenzlauerberg and then, and then Friedrichshain. But Friedrichshain was always the place that was kind of the center of the, um, the kind of punk, left wing the kind of mayday riots were always mayday riots which are always a big thing in berlin and were always centered actually around boxhagner platz that was what i learned when i moved into friedrichstein for the first time like that was um uh, it was always like yeah on mayday this place is going to kick off and it definitely did kick off on numerous occasions when i was living there like the mayday thing is really it's really a big deal in in germany and in, in berlin in particular and yeah there was definitely some burning cars and that sort of thing going on, which is, you know, it's fine. People got to make their point. And 1st of May is good a time to do it as any, I guess. But yeah, I was walking around there and it was, it's funny because it's so the same, but also like probably different. So it's one of those things where like, I just was walking down the streets and like the people who look the same and dress the same, but are just younger and ostensibly, you know, are just basically the same people, you know, to all intents and purposes. And it struck me 
what really struck me as I was sort of making that observation in the moment was that that is what culture is. That's the culture of a place making its mark on people and, you know, influencing them to act in a certain way, basically. So to dress in a certain way and to behave in a certain way. And that's so interesting to me because it's 15 years or so apart. And like that, that sort of punk aesthetic is you know 45 years old at this point or more and there's all sorts of discussion about what punk is and what punk means but i mean you know it's it's recognizable as a style like outwardly as an aesthetic and i guess as a an attitude i guess that's the thing that people put their finger on most i think people who are clued up about it probably but it, yeah it was anyway very very uh, noticeable to me that Friedrichstein is still very much of its own thing in its own son of a way but you know the way that the the city has changed even since I left like so for example like the main station closest to where I used to live is Warschaustrasse and there's this enormous shopping mall been built right outside the station across the road and that part of that that area when I moved over, was just a it was just vacant lots, and the first thing they built there when I was living there was the the arena. I forget what it's called, but it's like I think it's still sponsored by Mercedes these days. But it's like it's just just dreadful kind of sports slash live events arena. The only thing I've ever been to see there was Roger Waters doing the Wall, which I got a ticket for because well I just got a ticket for it through someone and. I am a Pink Floyd fan, but my God, that was a bad show. I left halfway through. I've never left halfway through a show before in my life. And it was, yeah. Anyway, less said about that, the better. But the, um, well, I guess it was a reflection of the venue that it was in, to be honest. Because, I mean, that that is a, a an eyesore, to say the least, that venue. And the this shopping mall that they've made, they've built, called the East Side Mall, is just, I mean, it's appalling. It really is bad. And it's like they've just as just at the moment that shopping malls become obsolete, they've built one. And it just seems to me that like the um, yeah, the outlook that's been taken towards developing the city is just not a good one, really at all. And it speaks to I guess the influence of corporate money and all the rest of it, but which is just you know, inevitable. But yeah, it, it's bad. It's really bad. But more pertinently to the show, there are other changes that I noticed and things that are the same too but other changes that I noticed like just putting on a night in the city and you know when I started doing this podcast I wanted to avoid talking about the pandemic as much as possible but it's inevitable unfortunately to put it in that context to put changes to particularly live events in that context and that also has an implication for music as well I mean the two things are obviously fundamental to each other but I mean like the changes in the changes in particularly the live space that we've talked about in recent episodes for example with Ned Beckett on last week's episode but also with Rich McGuinness and also Nicole Cacciavolano you know and their experiences running parties like it's obviously something which has been you know the defining event of the last few years so putting on a night in Berlin traditionally and my experience of this is I've quite got a fair amount of experience putting on parties in Berlin. So, I mean, you'll have heard me 
if you listen to previous episodes, you will have heard me talking about the substance parties that we did at Berghain. And those were a little bit different because we weren't really the promoters as such. So we were really just um, consulting on the lineup. So we picked the lineups and, and the Berghain in-house promotion team would basically do the work of, of selling the show, really, as it were. I mean, obviously, I was the kind of quote-unquote frontman for it as an artist. And, you know, there are certain things you have to do, if that's you, to sell an event. But, you know, it was we were not promoters in this sort of like traditional sense for those shows. But we used to do hot flush parties at a venue called Horst in Kreuzberg, which was an awesome venue run by a guy called Johnny who used to work at Trezor and various other places. So we used to do those pretty regularly every couple of months I think we did them and the kind of defining feature of putting on shows in Berlin I say shows it's not even shows it's the wrong way of putting it parties is the term is the terminology the defining feature is the fact that people go out so late certainly compared to being used to the kind of UK way of doing things like people will not get to a club under any circumstances before 2am in Berlin and even that is seen as being pretty early certainly that was my certainly my experience of it but our party on Friday this weekend like there were people there from I mean the the doors opened at 11 which I was surprised about anyway but there were people there like there was a reasonable dance floor from midnight and that blew my mind I have to say and when you've got people in from early it really has a has a effect on how you've programmed the night so if you've got a few djs which we did we had you know four acts basically playing and it was basically two hour sets like if you expect it to be empty for the first the entirety of the first dj set like (laughs) that is um that is a bit of a change when you've got people there and dancing so one of the kind of phenomena of recent times, and this has been discussed on Twitter, argued over on Twitter, is how you should approach a warm-up set these days and whether the new generation of DJs gives proper respect to the institution of the warm-up set um, and the implication being that they don't at all. And, um, you know, the tempo of music has definitely moved up a lot it's only what the kind of tempo expectations i guess of the audience <clears throat> have increased substantially and you know it was <laughs> it occurred to me during doing the dj who played first on friday during her set she was playing like around 135 ppm and you know a, an older friend of mine came up to me and was like wow this is extremely fast for early in the night <laughs> but it, but it occurred to me that it really depends on where you expect it to end up so if you expect the peak time dj to be around about 150 then 135 is completely reasonable to play during warm-up um, <laughs> but you know even five years ago 150 don't be ridiculous you wouldn't play 150 even if you're playing pretty hard so just the expectations have changed to such a large extent such a huge degree that i think it changes people's the way they view those early sets anyway so that was one thing and 
the other was well i mean i won't say too much about where the actual party panned out it was a really fun night i had a great time but if i'd known how the the crowd was gonna well if i'd known when people were going to arrive i would have programmed it a bit differently put it that way and it made me think about those kind of comments about warm-up sets and you know the the extent to which the kind of classical notion of building um building a party i guess from the kind of promoter's perspective like you know it's, it's a real kind of a, it's a kind of fine art putting a party together and you know making creating the environment for people to have a good time and the programming of the music is absolutely central to that particularly if you're you know if you've got a big lineup of and you're wondering where to put people like the running order it's really super significant you know and we've talked on the show about you know the the tradition of all night sets and talked about that to dubfire in relation to the um the classic kind of new york scene and the, that kind of tradition of one dj playing all night and you know that kind of skill of building like the atmosphere from very early on um knowing when to boost the system you know knowing when to drop the first vocal all those kinds of like little details which can make memorable moments happen on a dance floor memorable moments happen in a in a party and as i said the kind of the respect is apparently not paid anymore to um or to the extent that it should be to warm-up sets and that says a lot about the, the way people think about parties generally like it's like you know have those have those details been lost a bit in the way that people think about it if if the attitude of every dj is to come in and just play as hard as they can like do some of those nuances get lost and you know you'd have to say on the face of it yes they do um and it turns into something different right because you know that all night long thing which is very much kind of like house and techno but more kind of very much a kind of house attitude is so different to the kind of bass music attitude of like one hour sets and you know the classic, the classic drum and bass thing of like every day you know, you've got eight hour party eight djs and everyone turns up and plays their bangers and it's sort of a it's a kind of arms race a tunes arms race right so you have to do just the most with your set as possible and i guess the kind of djs that stood out in those environments those kind of like dj environments the scenes the djs that stood out were the ones that were able to do something different in and distinctive basically in those conditions right so i'm thinking about like dj hype for example with his scratching thing and i guess when andy c started doing double drops and that and that kind of stuff um to really kind of distinguish themselves from everyone else and that you know that's a creative thing you know that's that's a there's a lot to be said for that you know and and parameters constraints i've often said over the years can be extremely motivating and extremely inspiring right so it's not necessarily a bad thing to have these uh impositions and it's also an extremely easy thing to sort of shake your head at a new development such as the potential um ignoring of cherished party norms anyway <laughs> anyway so basically 
long way of saying that we had a great night on Friday, but it was a bit different to what I was thinking it was. And, you know, I don't know. These are just observations, extremely subjective observations. And I'm, I've been trying to figure out what, if any, the big changes have been, you know. And, and just going back to what I mentioned at the top was I was hoping to get out of this discussion because I'm basically having a discussion with myself here. I've written down some questions to answer, but, you know, whatever. Like one of the things I want to get out of it and one of the emergent themes from recent episodes of the show has been what has changed since the pandemic, right? And what what did the pandemic change in things, in music and in parties and in the industry? And if one of the things is that people are going out earlier and people are just generally paying less fealty, if that's the right word, to the established traditions, the established norms of the club scene like is that something that's going to endure because you know one of the one of the obvious things about sort of one of the obvious kind of demographic things is like you had a generation of kids that didn't start going out until two years other well best part of two years after they would otherwise have been and they obviously picked up their own cultural baggage in that period right and are now bringing it to the rave and you know that's that's fine but it does have implications and it's it's interesting to observe how these things manifest themselves in the kind of day-to-day of of working in music anyway there are a couple of other things i wrote down from berlin so (laughs) in the gents toilet i was um there was a sticker like just opposite at my eye level which said like no borders and one of the things which is emerging in the last few weeks and it's emerging you know it's been in my head for a little while but um the impact of the kind of global situation on the music scene and stuff like inflation and supply chain disruption and cheap flights becoming less available and potential for oil prices, therefore fuel prices, to be significantly higher going forward and how that will impact what we do as musicians and what we do in the music industry generally. And I've asked a few people about this, talked about it to Ned last week, had quite a deep discussion with George Fitzgerald about this and other stuff that was a great episode i have to say there was a danger there which (laughs) there was a danger of it becoming a bit matey because i'm sure many of you know that george and i are very good friends um i think we did a pretty good job of not descending into uh bro stuff (laughs) but um and yeah and particularly in the second hour of that we had a really interesting quite deep discussion about the potential development points for music based around stuff like that and you know george was hypothesizing that this might have a you know a knock-on effect for you know in terms of like local acts getting booked more often sort of a similar sort of set of forces which sort of happened or threatened to happen anyway in the pandemic um but if it becomes prohibitively expensive to book an up-and-coming dj from out of town then that will really have a significant impact on how people build their careers, right? Because an important part of 
or perhaps the most important part of building an artist's career in the last 20 years has been the ability to tour widely from early on at low cost and take your sound around the world, basically, from, you know, the first couple of releases that you have, or maybe you've just got a radio show or whatever, wherever there's a kind of, you know, demand for you to play and, you know, you're visible to everyone now, obviously, due to the fact that everything is online. So that kind of, like, low barrier to entry in terms of access to your music and the low barriers to cost of touring. Like, if those two things go away, or certainly if the, the latter of those two things goes away, like, that means it's that much more difficult. And, yeah, maybe that means that you'll have more opportunity for playing in your own city, but, like... <laughs> If that means that's all you do, then where do you where do you go as an artist? Like the, if if you have to have had a big hit record or whatever to make it worthwhile, someone paying your your much increased travel costs to get a show elsewhere, like that means it's it's much more difficult, much more. Just it makes the the whole landscape that much more challenging I think and that's much more difficult to build something for yourself long term and if you think about it like that we've really been in a really easy um, a really easy landscape for the last 20 years or so in terms of that stuff certainly so that's kind of scary actually going forward the other thing about this weekend that I wanted to talk about was yeah playing on her H-O-R with an umlet. Yeah, it's kind of... um, They've caught an enormous amount of hype in the last couple of years. I think partly or mostly because they have an extremely easily identifiable visual hook, like the bathroom thing, as I mentioned earlier. And, I mean, also they've been... They've done the stuff that you have to do, right? So they've been extremely consistent with doing lots and lots of content. I was trying to avoid using the word content then, but lots of just lots of stuff. And they're very consistent about the programming. You know, I've got a pretty pretty good range of music on there. And, you know, they, they it's it's broad enough, I guess, to, to draw enough people in and it's consistently good enough to, you know, maintain their reputation musically, I guess. So that's all fine. The flip side of it, though, and this is kind of like, this is the kind of boiler room effect, I suppose. Obviously, boiler room started this stuff and the kind of the hook with boiler room was having people dancing behind the DJ. So it became, you know, the audience became a key part of each of the streams. And that's, you know, having a, you know, a memeable <laughs> boiler room appearance has been one of the ways in which you can build a career. I mean, we had someone on the label, I won't mention who, maybe some of you will be able to guess who, but who really became a big act off the back of one boiler room appearance. And it wasn't because of the set. It was because one of the people in the audience were really funny and, you know, became a meme, basically. And the fact that the person in the audience was stood right next to the DJ meant that, you know, it rubbed off on on them. So... (laughs) And that's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You you take your break where you can get it, 
right in in anything in life i think so if if a memeable dude on a live stream means that a ton of people listen to your music then fine that's that's absolutely fine but it it does sort of like beg the question like at what point does the visual side start eating the music side is the slight problematic area when talking about this stuff because you know in the run-up to me playing my set on her this weekend literally no one asked me what I was going to play like musically no one asked me not a single person or what you know, have you got any tunes for it have you made any new beats like what's going on instead everyone asked me what my viral moment was going to be <laughs> like that was the only question I fielded and it's because you know those things have just become such a huge like point of reference for people and like there's the um bathroom hits sort of sides channel to it and all the kind of stuff that goes on around it and there's been so many people who have made a sort of performance art performance out of their appearances on her and as i said like that's completely fine i'm not I'm not being snobbish about this at all but but big but like it is supposed to be a music show right so if the visual side comes completely eaten the music side like where, where does what does that say well first, first of all what does it say about the music i mean that's a you know that's a damning indictment really of of what, what's being played and you know what does that say to us about you know how we what we expect from our musicians like are they musicians anymore primarily and this is one of the things that i've scratched my head about a lot and it's very easy as someone who's been around for a long time it's very easy to be dismissive of developments and you have to catch yourself and say well hang on a sec no this is um this is just how it is this is what people are this is what people are vibing off now and you need to be open-minded about it but again but it is difficult and we've talked about this there's various different elements to this. We talked a little bit about it with with Danny Days, and he's been quite outspoken about the sort of developments in this sort of thing on on Twitter. And like we kind of had a discussion which included a kind of we we talked about the diversity thing, which is sort of adjacent to this. And you know, I've kind of decided that I don't really want to talk about that stuff anymore because it's just quite a boring conversation and you have to be so careful with what you say about it which on the the one hand is fine and I understand why people are sort of touchy about it and I understand that as as a white guy I'm in a position where I you know I should be watching what I say about certain things and that's fine I accept that that's that's cool but it it does mean that it's difficult to have a, a proper conversation an intellectually honest conversation about a topic and I think that issue has become one of those things for me. So, I mean, that's an aside. Um, anyway, so I played my set and I wanted to say something about my set, actually. And this is this is just about music. So putting to one side what I've just been saying about the increasing irrelevance of music, <laughs> if you like. I, well, those of you who followed my musical output since 2005, which is when the first Scuba record came out, I have had a kind of love-hate relationship with dubstep and bass music. Let's call it bass music. 
<laughs> for reasons which regular listeners will understand. So I was part of the early dubstep scene and my move to Berlin, which I've now mentioned twice on the show, um, <laughs> to be consistent. My move to Berlin was was really partly motivated. I, mean, I said earlier that it was motivated by money, but it was also motivated by the desire to get out of the London dubstep scene, which had just blown up in the previous year. And I'd been, you know, I'd been part of it, you know, going to the nights, but also releasing records and, you know, running a label. Like Hot Flush was, there was a year during the development of dubstep where everything went really quiet. I think it was 2004 or five. Um, it was 2004 and everything went really quiet. And it was like, it was the year that Ford nearly stopped because there was no one coming. And Garage was really dead. We talked about that with MJ Cole, actually. And by the way, sidebar, that MJ Cole episode has been the most popular one that we've done so far. And it was great. He's a really interesting guy. And we had some, we had a great back and forth about various things. That was awesome. Anyway, 2004, which was the year his second album came out, I think, but it was certainly around then. And that garage was just on the floor. And, you know, dubstep was still nascent. And Hot Flush was basically the only label still releasing regularly, like basically um, in that year. So we were definitely part of that early dubstep thing in a big way. But as we said, as has been covered on the show, I think it was the Joe Nice episode. Like I'm not from South London. I'm not from Croydon. So, you know, I'm not part of that group at all. And I know those guys are all great. I mean, and I you know, get on well with them, but that's not me. So the kind of emerging narrative of dubstep was it was a Croydon thing, right? And that became, to me, like a bit frustrating, frankly, that that was just the received wisdom of all of it. And it just became a little bit suffocating. And I wanted to get out of it. I was getting pissed off with the music and I was just like, mm, this is I, I need to do something else. So that was a big motivating factor for getting out of London, in addition to the fact that it was super expensive. So my first album came out the year later and the title of it, A Mutual Antipathy, was a direct reference to that, my relationship with the dubstep scene. Triangulation, which came out two years later, was kind of, I guess, like the kind of total of my musical efforts to that point. Like everything that I'd done in bass music kind of built up to that record. And you know, there's a reason why it's popular. It's because it's probably, or certainly of that kind of stuff, it's my the best work that I've done probably to date. With that record, it reached a point where I was like, well, I, I want to do something else now. I've, I've done what I wanted to do in this style, basically, <laughs> which is the worst thing to do when you have a successful rec- you have a successful piece of art. What people want you to do is replicate it again and again, and that's a smart thing to do, right? All the big successful dance acts electronic acts have got a very definable sound and they basically do it again and again and again and that's true whether it's from dubstep artists to bass music artists to house artists to whatever you name it i could name some names i'm sure you can name some names in your in your head whether it's you know someone who made a dubstep album in 2007 or you know (laughs) a famous band who first came out in 95 so I took the decision to do something completely different after my successful record, even though obviously it was success is a relative thing. It was successful for me. 
So I want to see something different. And I did. And I spent, you know, five years making house music. And actually, I was more successful doing that than I had been with anything else. But, you know, lots of people didn't like the fact that lots of people who had liked triangulation and my previous stuff didn't like the fact that I was doing that. And I lost a lot of people along the way. And, you know, I've been kind of reckoning with that ever since. And, you know, what I then did was decided that I wanted to make techno. So I did that, even though I'd been sort of like in and around techno with my techno slash dubstep stuff since 2008. But, you know, I spent a long time just doing the techno circuit, which pissed off loads of people. Pissed off is probably the the wrong word, which just um, lost the attention of people who had been into my house stuff. And, you know, (laughs) that's another thing which, you know, is not a good idea. I wouldn't advise people to do. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that the set that I played at her this weekend is kind of the... I've been trying to put together a sound for a a while now, a long time, that I can be, like... that makes sense with that triangulation thing, but is up-to-date and is fun for me to play and I can get away with playing at techno parties. So the reason for those three things are, um, or the reason for all of those things are basically that I I like playing techno parties the most. Those are the raves that I like playing my sets at. Absolutely. I don't like the whole bass music rewind culture thing. I hate all that stuff. I can't stand it. I'd really, you know, occasionally I, I'm, it's fun playing at that kind of party, but I cannot do the circuit like that at all. So I like playing at techno shows. I want to play faster. doesn't make sense to play house. You can't play, you know, fast and big bassy drops and stuff at house shows. You've got to be much more understated with it. So um, basically what I played is the closest to the kind of sound that I've been trying to get for a long while now. It includes a bunch of new music that I made recently or over the last few months, unfinished stuff mixed together with um you know music from friends and also like you know just you know this sort of faster kind of groovier techno stuff which is coming out now basically influenced by truncate basically it's been clear to me that he's a super influential producer that guy on lots of people but anyway long way of saying that's a set that i'm happy with and we didn't have a viral event on <laughs> on the stream unfortunately although i did nearly make myself one by accidentally spilling a whole bunch of water on the floor and then sliding about trying not to fall over and actually very nearly falling over on more than one occasion throughout the subsequent 40 odd minutes of (laughs) of the set it was yeah it was nearly bad or maybe it would have been good considering the um potential benefits to be had from a viral event i'm not sure that slipping on slipping over on your face is a good um, is a good viral event you just look like a dick but then maybe if you just own it you can get away with it maybe um anyway so that's all good i've been rambling on for a long while on the subject of this weekend i didn't mean to go on for quite this long so just a quick recap on the episodes I mean, like i said there's 19 of them so i won't go through each one but Obviously, we've had mostly DJs and producers, like artists, whatever. But regular listeners will have heard me banging on about the fact that this is not just a DJ show. It's not just an artist show. So we're trying to cover various different angles of the music industry, and particularly our part of the music industry, the kind of electronic part, but not 
necessarily limited to that. Anyway, so we've had, as mentioned, Nicole Cacciavlano, who's super important dubstep promoter, bass music promoter from Denver in the States. I played for her earlier this year as well. She's great. And her insights into the development of that sound in the US, in North America, was super, super interesting. And we were able to kind of juxtapose that with Joe Nice, who is arguably the most important bass music DJ in America. So his episodes, which went on for... Was that, that was the longest one we've done, actually. That was like a three-hour episode, which included the best part of an hour at the end of it, just talking about racial politics, which was really, really interesting. Um, and Joe's a great guy with just a huge knowledge of so many different areas of life actually like he um he has an encyclopedic knowledge of um of music but also i've never met anyone who knows as much about sport different sports as joe nice like any sport he will be able to tell you just unbelievable levels of detail uh, (laughs) about any aspect of that sport seemingly and also he's extremely educated and knows almost everything about you know politics and political philosophy so that was an awesome episode i love that um it was great we had rich mcginnis from the warehouse project amongst other things in manchester that's a very famous party if you're listening outside the uk you might not be familiar with it but if you're in the uk you've almost certainly heard of warehouse project it was super interesting getting his take on growing up in northern ireland during the troubles and the effects that the acid house and the early rave scene had in mellowing that really bad part of Northern Irish history and sort of laying the foundations for the Good Friday Agreement. And that was a, something that I didn't anticipate when I started the show, just to be able to get insights like that. That was absolutely awesome. And also on the topic of acid house, we had Dave Clark, and that was an episode which was super popular too, almost as popular as MJ Cole. And in fact, um, while I remember, I've got to say shouts to Sebastian, the lighting guy at Aiden. Um, he came up to me and said, oh, I love the podcast. And it's funny because, I mean, it's going back to the music thing. Like no one has come up to me and said, I like your music for ages. I mean, obviously there's people at shows so yeah, yeah, I like, yeah, I'm here to play. So obviously I like your music. But People people compliment me on on the podcast way more than anything else that I've done for so long, so that's nice. Anyway, he mentioned that he liked the Dave Clark episode, which is the reason that I, I mentioned that here. Um, and the Dave Clark episode was the was one where we talked about lots of peripheral stuff to music too. So there was a fair bit of politics chat in that, which was highly enjoyable. Dave Clark is a very interesting guy and someone who is unafraid to say what he thinks about stuff in a fairly unvarnished way, which is quite rare these days. It really is rare. And in fact, you know, as I've been moving into getting people who I don't know or asking people who I don't know to come on the show, it's really, it's really common to say, oh, come on, can I have a list of questions like in advance? And, you know, no, you can't have a list of questions, I'm afraid. <laughs> Because it's a conversation, right? I'm going to have a sort of broad agenda and I'll give you the agenda. But I'm not going to give you questions. Afraid not. So the other one that I should mention is Melissa Taylor because she's the only PR person that we've had on thus far. And the conversation I had with her was great. 
Um, that was some. That was one that I don't think I would have been able to have with someone who I didn't know. Like I go way back with Melissa, and we get on well. And it's easy to have a kind of good-natured disagreement with someone like that. So we definitely went back and forth on some things, which I probably wouldn't have done with someone who I didn't know. So that was good. That was extremely interesting. In fact, on the topics of, um, in fact, we had we had a good back and forth on diversity actually. And yeah, I think oh, I think I've said all I want to say on that topic, as mentioned before. Anyway. Anyway, the other development we've had since the last Roundup episode was doing Patreon. And if you're listening to this feed, you're not a patron because one of the benefits of being on Patreon is that you don't get the hard sell stuff. (laughs) So let me just um, tell you why we're doing that and why it's good and why you should, if you can, sign up there. I... I'm doing this, like I said, like it's basically a hobby, this show. I mean, it's kind of something that I've done because I'm interested in talking to people about various different things. I mean, that's the most obvious thing to say ever about something. But, you know, there's no like business plan for it. Um, It's not a way of, of making money. And yet I'm spending like roughly a day a week doing it. And despite the fact that it's not for making money ostensibly or primarily, you know, I do want to have the biggest audience possible for it. So the main pods will always be available free to wear. Like I'm not going to pay all that. But, you know, I want to build the audience and we have to do that through advertising basically. So we need some budget. So the primary reason for doing Patreon is to get the adverts going basically. Because that's, I mean, what I've learned about podcast marketing is that it's it's really quite difficult and you have to have a budget you have to spend quite a lot of money and you have to be willing to um waste quite a lot of money or seemingly waste quite a lot of money but so we need that you know i'm lucky that i don't have any setup costs i've got a recording studio in my house so i'm just sitting here in in my studio now rambling on but the other thing that would be good to do would be to do video that's the thing which is the kind of big sort of sticking point now and I don't know how I'm going to I don't know how I can do that for every time because you need a set and all that kind of stuff you know really to do it right and you know my favorite podcasts are just audio most of them anyway like if you're familiar with the Bob Lefsets podcast and if you're familiar with Bob Lefsets but that is basically the template for this I mean I'm drawing back the curtain here a little bit but really this podcast is directly influenced by that but he interviews people from you know who are born 30 years before the average interviewee on this podcast but I love it anyway but it's um that's audio only so I feel justified in that respect but if I'm serious about wanting to build it then we need video and that's that is definitely more of an investment and that is something that we need money for so basically if you're enjoying the show and you want to support it then Patreon is available. There's two tiers. There's one just a regular um, support the show tier, but there are bonus bits of content that go out with that tier. And I'm going to be doing one this week, which is going to be a little bit of fun, I think. In fact, no, I am definitely doing it. Yeah, so that's that. And then there is a tier called Musicality, which is a bit more expensive, which gets basically gets you on the Hot Flush promo list, essentially. So it's everything we release a few weeks in advance in high-quality download formats. So... I think that's a decent offering 
you know as the community builds on there we're going to potentially look at doing more stuff for example like zoom seminars to discuss the stuff discuss the issues talked about on the podcast a little bit more deeply and we can have guests for those as well so potentially we'd have a, a show which would be aired and then a few days later we'd have a zoom call with the same guest to talk a little bit more take questions that kind of stuff that could be cool but we need a bit more of a community on there to do that so that's something we're looking at in the coming weeks and months and um yeah we are pushing on basically there's plans for potentially doing live events as well around this when I say live events, I mean, I don't mean like big hard ticket shows or anything, but um, stuff like, you know, at conferences and that sort of thing, potentially. So we'll see. We'll see how this develops. As I mentioned at the top, it's been a kind of see how things as they develop kind of process this without too much planning, certainly in terms of like the, the content, in terms of like the discussion points and all that kind of stuff. There's a little bit of strategy going on now in terms of how we build it out. But like I said, you know, we are getting there slowly, slowly. Anyway, um, I think I've gone on long enough with this. I will be back next week with a guest for sure. And as I said, if you're a patron, then there'll be some extra bit of content, a bit, bit more of me chatting. If this hasn't been enough later this week. So yeah. Until next time, I've been Scuba. Thanks for listening. I'll check you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.